All right, we're going to open the Bible to Matthew chapter 13. It's on page 1441 in the Brown Bibles. In this chapter, there's a sequence of parables. Parables were stories that Jesus told that would teach some aspect of truth and usually in just the very simplest terms would capture an idea and uh, were designed to kind of be a timeless pearls of truth on different themes. And throughout this particular chapter, we find um, a sequence of parables that are all about the kingdom. So the minute Jesus starts preaching, he starts announcing what he calls the kingdom of God. And um, when I suppose one of the questions you have when you're reading the Gospels is, what does he mean by the kingdom of God? It's obviously not an earthly kingdom in the sense that we recognize them to be. But it is something to do with the rule of Christ being extended. And so throughout this chapter, it's really giving us insight into what the kingdom of God is all about and how it's then reflected also in people, in the church, uh, which is kind of the visible human expression of the kingdom. Um, So what I'm wanting to do in the coming weeks is just look at these parables um, in sequence and just try and uncover some of the things that would shape the church's reality, what the church is, based on the teaching of Jesus, which is always a great place to start. So the, we, looked, we began looking at this parable of the sower, uh, one of the more famous, well-known ones, last week. I'm going to read it to you again, and then we'll try and just get to... We're really just going to focus on the very last part today. So from verse 1, we'll just read the first nine verses. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him. So they got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Basically, in a nutshell, this parable is about the responses of different people's hearts to um, what we call the gospel, which is just the message, the the essence of what Christianity is all about, and how different people respond in different ways based on their heart, their heart response. And uh, last week we were just thinking about the first three. He talks about hardened soil, you know, the edge of a field where you walk up and down. It becomes so impenetrable to the seed. And it, it was really a picture of people who either immediately reject what they hear about Christianity, or they're just so apathetic, it doesn't really scratch the surface. It doesn't make a dent. It doesn't have a ripple in their life at all. They just move on as though they've never heard anything. Then he talked about the shallow soil, the kind of rocky, shallow soil. And it was really a picture of people who hear hear the truth about the message about Jesus, and their first response is is a happy one, is excited. Um, And... I guess when you first hear what Christianity is about and you first sort of get a grasp on it, it is the most profound thing you could ever hear. Um, It's life-changing, it's world-changing. 
But a lot of people, Jesus says, on account of the word, in other words, on account of the message, they begin to experience kinds of suffering, new kinds of suffering, or, or also, he says, persecution. In other words, there's a cost to being a Christian, and a lot of people don't really want to pay the price. So even if they were happy initially, that happiness is going to wear off when you realize that there's a certain there's a downside as well. There's a, there's a tough element. He says they wither away. Then he said there's, a, there's people with the, the thorny soil where the thorns, as you know, brambles, they take over, don't they? We used to have them in our garden when I was growing up. And we, you know, I enjoyed the blackberries, but these things would just spread and spread. And every branch seemed to be able to find its way into the ground and make new roots and create a new plant. And you had to be vigorous and um, determined to uproot these things. And they kill everything around them because they... They, they block out the light. They suck up the water. They are, um, they're a pest in the garden. And he said, Jesus is basically saying that your heart can be like thorny soil. You can have all kinds of things that distract you from um, a focus on, 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 on him, basically. Um, that can be, it can be your job. It can be a relationship. It can be um, the pursuit of money, of things, of stuff. It can be... Um, whatever priorities you set in your life that compete with your faith, basically. And he said, that plants there are going to be utterly fruitless in the end. Well, I'm not going to talk about any of that today because what I want to think about is what he calls here in verse 8, the good soil. He says, some seed, remember the message, falls on good soil and it produced grain. He gives us the interpretation over the page Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, I know that the minute, as a Christian, you start talking about, with the language that Jesus uses here, he talks about good soil, doesn't he? Um, You can immediately get a pushback on that, that, a lot of people today would think that the core problem, the real frustration, the bugbear that they have with religion is that religious people tend to divide the world, don't they, between um, good and bad. So Jesus says here, the good soil. And they say, this is a problem with you Christians. You, you judge everyone around you and say, you're, you're good, everyone else is bad, and it makes you so superior it makes you judgmental, it makes you proud, it makes you bigoted, it makes you ready to just condemn us and tell us the ways that we're wrong, and on and on. And uh, I guess immediately we need to respond to that before we get into what Jesus is talking about here. I, I would just say, first of all, yeah, there's some truth to that. Certainly religion generally, and certain types of Christians can be like that. That there, is, there can be, on the one hand, from the Christian point of view, a superiority a sense that I'm better, often pride. And then also from the perspective of people who encounter these types of Christians, um, a wounded sort of frustration and, or a sense of guilt or a sense of being judged or these kinds of things. I'm not going to deny that that's a reality. But I think you also have to understand that the solution, which is what seems to be going around today, it can't possibly be that we need to obliterate these ideas of good and bad. Now, I know people don't often talk in that exact language, but that's basically the kind of predominant way of thinking that people have today, that 
It's not about good and bad. It's about self-expression. Whatever you find in yourself to express, that is good. And I just say that is, you know, with respect, it's complete nonsense. There's just no way we can obliterate the difference between good and bad and say that everyone can just express themselves in whatever way they see fit. And in fact, even though people say that, they don't carry it out in practice because day after day, every single day, on your, on your, um, your news app, on your phone, or on the TV, we are reading and hearing stories that are condemning people for their actions. And we agree with them. We all know there's a difference between good and bad. So we can't possibly do away with that distinction altogether. But I need to also say something else. that If we can't, then there has to be a solution here that doesn't make religious people seem to be the judgmental ones on a pedestal. And really, when you understand the heart of what Christianity is about, you realize that true Christianity isn't like that at all. I want to, uh, hopefully you understand some of the reason why as we go on. But just a little clue here is that when Jesus says the good soil, describing your heart, the good soil receives a seed and bears fruit, he's not talking in categories of being morally good soil. He's not saying it's, it's morally better, a better person who receives a seed and then bears fruit. What makes soil good? And the, way, the word that's used here for good is a word that is used in the same way we would say talk about good soil today. It doesn't mean morally good. It can be translated the fertile soil. As you know, fertile soil is usually soil with lots of manure and poo mixed in with it. And there's a sense in which, even in Christianity, we say exactly the same thing, that the good soil is not the morally good heart, it's the heart which simply acknowledges that it's messed up and can therefore receive the seed. That's getting a little bit more to the heart of what Christians talk about when they, when they say the good soil receives a seed. Now, what I want to do is just... When we talk about being fruitful, this is very biblical language, and it's the language Jesus uses here. We're really getting to what it means to live a successful life in God's eyes, and what he counts as important, what he counts as precious. And I want to just try and unpack this a little bit for you under three headings or ideas. I want to talk about the conditions fruitfulness, the, um, the promise of fruitfulness, and the fruit of fruitfulness. So in other words, what it takes to be the good soil, what guarantees there are that you're going to produce something with your life, and then what that will look like, what happens when the soil brings fruit. Beginning then with this first thing, the conditions for fruitfulness. What is Jesus talking about here when he describes the good soil? What kind of... Um, Soil, what kind of heart is he describing that's, that's ready for the gospel, that's ready for the seed, that's ready for the message of what Christians talk about? Now, I think it's so important to keep reiterating, as I did last week, that it's nothing to do with being a better person. This is one of the strongest themes in Jesus' teaching and one of the most, I should say, least understood ideas about Jesus, that he didn't come around trying to find good people, he came around trying to find people who recognized they had a sickness in their soul. He said that I haven't come to, for the healthy, I've come for the sick. One of the most vivid ways he portrayed this was in a parable in Luke 18. It's on page 1542 if you want to follow, but in that parable from verse 9, he, he talks about two types of people going up to temple to pray. He says one of them is a Pharisee. In other words, he's the religious elite. 
The other one is a tax collector. In other words, he is absolute scum in the Jewish mindset. And he says they pray in these two ways. The Pharisee goes up and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. In other words, he comes to God in prayer and he starts boasting about how great his life is. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it, when you compare your life to God and you start trying to tell God your goodness because obviously he sees through it. It's a very thin veneer, isn't it? He knows your heart. He knows your motives. He knows your desires. He knows why you're doing things, not just the fact that you're doing things. It seems ridiculous when you start to look through it. But this is, this is what we talk about when we're talking about sort of religious pride and superiority. It's a million miles away from what Jesus, Jesus wanted in his followers. And then he goes on and he talks about the tax collector's prayer. It says in verse 13, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. In other words, made right, cleansed, put right with God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So when we're asking this question, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about good soil? We are not talking about religious elite. We're talking about people who recognize that their heart, like that of the tax collector, is sinful. It's a very simple thing. But it's, it's probably the most misunderstood thing about Christianity. So we're not talking about being a better person. And we're not talking about any other criteria, really. We're not talk- the good soil isn't a smarter person. It's not a more religious person. It's not a more spiritual person. None of that counts for anything in God's eyes. So what is it that characterizes this person, this person's heart? It's very simple, really. In verse 23, he says this. It's the one who hears the word and understands it. They hear the word, they hear the message, what Christianity is about, and they understand it. They grasp it. It sinks in. And we know that this means that it's not just a a kind of bare intellectual understanding. It's the kind of understanding that, that resonates in your being. That you say, yes, I get it, and I think it's true. We're talking about the difference in knowledge here between somebody who's read the history books about the First or Second World Wars, and somebody who's been on the battlefields, somebody who's played war games on their PlayStation and Xbox, or somebody who's actually pulled the trigger. My great-grandfather was um, in the Battle of the Somme, which, if you know anything about World War I, was a complete um, bloodbath. It was uh, millions of men died that on, in, in, in a very short space of time. My great-grandfather was one of the survivors, but my dad used to share a room with him. He was his granddad, and they used to share a room when my dad was a little boy. And my great-grandfather, apparently, although I never met him, apparently he would often wake up in the night startled with nightmares. Now, his knowledge of what war is is a completely different thing from somebody who's just read about war, the historian in the ivory tower. He knew it. And there's a sense in which when Jesus is talking about the gospel here, and then the person who hears the word and understands it, he means somebody who gets it at the deepest level. 
suddenly the, the realities of what Christianity is about become vivid to you. And they become true. You understand them. Um, what does that look or feel like in a person? What makes a person able to hear and understand? There's lots of ways this is described in the New Testament. Um, this is where the language, by the way, of being born again comes from. It's used once in the New Testament. It's become a bit of a kind of a, um, a mocking way of speaking about Christians. But it's, it's used in the New Testament, the idea of, of, of new life, of being transformed. Um, in, in another passage in the New Testament, Paul, who wrote it, says that you were dead and now you've been made alive. It's a, it's a very definite transition from not understanding to hearing and understanding. You've been made alive. It's talked about th- this moment or this reality in your life is talked about uh, with, with, in connection with the idea of repentance. Repentance just means somebody feeling a deep sorrow for their sin and wanting to turn away from it. Um, Paul puts it in this way in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, he says it's possible that you can have a guy who's, who's sorry for the things he's done wrong, but he doesn't really want to turn away from them. Or he's just sorry about the results or the, the kind of effects of the things he's done wrong. But he says... When a person is a Christian, when a person hears and understands the message of Christianity, it produces in them a deep grief for their sin. I'm just trying to paint the picture of some of the markers of what happens in a person when they hear and understand what makes them this good soil. Another way we could think about this is the idea of transition from from blindness to seeing. Um, this is, again, language that comes through in the Bible, that you were blind, I was blind, but now I see. It's a phrase taken straight from the Bible. But one example of this is the Apostle Paul. If you know anything about Paul, or Saul, as he was called, he was a vehement, rabid, fanatical uh, religious zealot who made it his life's mission to kill Christians. In the very earliest days of the church, he, would, he was a kind of headhunter for the religious elite. He went around trying to find and arrest and put Christians to death. But he has an encounter with, with the living Jesus. On the way to Damascus, he sees Jesus, and he's struck blind. Um, three days later, he's prayed for by a man called Ananias, and immediately he can see again. And of course, Paul transitions from unbelief to belief in, in a very short space of time. But it says that when Ananias prays for him, something like scales fell off his eyes. In Acts chapter 9 it says. And I think that the the reason that it puts it in that way is a kind of vivid picture of what it is like on the spiritual level when a person comes to see the gospel. That it's something like scales fall off your eyes. It's not your physical eyes, but at some level in your being you go from not understanding to understanding. So when we're talking here about what is the good soil, it's really a very simple thing. It's not a better, per- it's not a better person, it's not a smarter person, it's not a more religious person. It's just somebody who hears the truth about Jesus and they, they get it. It makes sense and they believe it. I think one of the unfortunate things that we've seen in, in churches in recent years, in last, I say recent years, I really mean the last century or so, 
Um, not that recent, but in the grand scheme of things, it is quite recent, is that there's a tendency to sensationalise very dramatic stories of how this happens. I've just been telling you a couple. Um, But really, this can be very different for every person. That in some cases, it can be a very impulsive thing, and in some cases, it's a very careful thing. Um, One example in the Bible is of a group of guys who hear... Paul preaching about Jesus, and they're called the Bereans. They're a group of Jewish men who'd never heard about Jesus. And it says they go and examine the scriptures to see if, it, if what he's saying is true. In other words, they're not at all impulsive. They're very careful, and they're studious, and they, wanna, they really want to understand. On the other hand, there are guys who hear it for the first time, and immediately it makes sense. That's it. They're done. They're, they, they want Jesus. They want to belong to his people. So you can be impulsive or can be careful. Sometimes it can be very fast and there are examples of people coming to faith very quickly and then sometimes it's slow it, there's, there's just no one pattern that this happens um, sometimes it's, it's very dramatic like a man called Zacchaeus um, a, t- a tax collector again climbs a tree, Jesus sees him, he invites him down, he goes to dinner at Zacchaeus' house Zacchaeus is transformed by his encounter with Jesus, and immediately he goes, and he's a crook, basically. He goes and he, he starts repaying everybody who he's stolen money from. And it just happens dramatically. But sometimes when people come to faith, it's a very quiet, slow thing. And in a sense, it really doesn't matter how it happens, how quickly, what the process is. The only thing that matters is that it has happened. That at some point in your life, you've heard, you've really heard what Jesus is about, and you've understood it. It's made sense to you in the deepest part of your being. And every one of us knows if that's true of us or not. That's the condition for fruitfulness. I want to talk next about the promise of fruitfulness, really trying to uncover this question. Does it always work? So Jesus says here that the good soil receives a seed and then it bears fruit. And um, I'm going to explain a little bit more what that actually means a little bit later, but... One of the questions that we ought to have is, can it work? Does it work always? Does it work? Will it work in you? Now, if you're not a Christian, um, I think this is, this is a hugely important question. Is, does Christianity work? Does it do anything to your life? Does it make a difference if today you became a Christian, would tomorrow look any different? These are really important questions. And even for Christians... I think that there are times in life where you can begin to feel like you're plateauing or, or feel like your life is barren or that you're not getting anywhere or nothing's happening. And you can begin to question this. Does it work? Is it, gonna, is it having its effect on my life? Is, is the message of Christianity making a difference to me? I think the thing to understand here from Jesus' story and from the Bible as a whole is that the power for change and the power of the effectiveness, it doesn't lie in, in us. We're just kind of the receptacles. We're almost, in a sense, the passive ones. The power and the reason that Christianity works is all in the seed. It's all in the message. It's all in the things we talk about and what the scriptures tell us. Why don't you just turn over to Psalm 1? I think this is helpful just to illustrate what I'm talking about here. This may have been the psalm that was on Jesus' mind when he kind of constructed this parable. Um, It's on page 730. 
in this psalm, the same sort of pictures come through of, um, of organic growth and of fruitfulness, except the idea is reversed here. Instead of, um, instead of the seed or the plant being the word of God and your life being the soil, it's kind of flipped around where you are the tree and you're sucking the nutrients from the soil, which is the word of God. So that's kind of what he's talking about here in Psalm 1. I'll just read the first couple of verses. It says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In other words, his delight is in, you could say, the message of, of, of the gospel. And on it, he meditates, which the word is mutter, or kind of mumble and, and chew it over. It's not like sort of Eastern transcendental meditation where you empty your mind and, and say um or something like that. It's, it's very much the opposite. It's the chewing and the, the, the kind of turning over of an idea until it, you really get it and it gets into you. And he says that the, the blessed man is somebody who's, who's rooted in the word of God. And then there are these, these five promises that come through in the psalm about what it will do to your life when when you're rooted in this way. The first is in this, the verse I read at the beginning, verse 1, blessed is the man. The word blessed, it means happy. It means joyful. Christianity and the message of, about Jesus has that effect of producing joy in the heart. I'm not talking about a frivolous sort of excitable happiness that comes and goes. I'm talking about the most deep-seated kind of joy that actually begins to reorientate your whole outlook on life. It's not that Christians never feel miserable. It's not that Christians never have uh, blue days where they get out of bed on the wrong side of the bed or that they don't face difficult circumstances and grief and sorrow in life. But through it all, there's a kind of there's a sense in which you can be anchored. That whereas before, like a boat out at sea, completely at the mercy of the waves, when you, are, when you are planted in the Word of God, it's like having an anchor on the seabed of joy. So that even when it's a very bad day or a very bad season in life, the storms lick up around you, there is a steadiness, a stableness, something that can carry you through, and it is this joy, this happiness, that you know God that you know his forgiveness, that you know that you're his treasured possession, his child, that you're part of his family, that you have brothers and sisters in Christ who love you um, with a sacrificial love, and on and on. That's, that's the first thing. There's a few more. Look at verse 3. It says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. There's a second promise. It yields fruit. Now, I know that there's a lot of Christians going around today preaching that if you love God and you have faith in God, he'll make you rich, he'll make you healthy all the time. And, you know, that's not what he's talking about here, and that's not really the message of the Bible. There's elements that God does promise blessing on people. But when he says that this man yields fruit in its season, you have to have a much bigger understanding of what fruitfulness is, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But it does mean that there's going to be good effects in your life and that it is the work of the word in you, that it's the work of the message, that it does its powerful work in you 
all by itself almost. A third thing, then, in the next line, he says its leaf doesn't wither. I think for many people, perhaps especially men hitting middle age, the idea of, of withering, of losing um, your mojo, of not having an effect in life or making or reaching where you want to get, of, in fact, losing your leaves and beginning to wither is one of the greatest fears that men have. And I'm sure it's true also of, of women. But what he's saying here is that the person who's, who's rooted in the Word of God has a consistency in life that they keep bringing forth fruit. Their leaves don't wither and they can all keep bearing fruit season after season into old age. That God doesn't let you go and he doesn't let you go barren either. Then he says in the next line, in all that he does, he prospers. The word prosper means rush ahead. It's like whereas things before were hard labor, suddenly... um, when you're living under the favor of God and in the will of God, there can be an ease in life that things happen because God is intervening, because his favor is upon you. Now, as I said earlier, it doesn't mean that God's going to take away all problems or that he's always going to make you rich, healthy, and whatever. But it does mean that God's blessing can rest on, on, on his people in a way that you would not have known or encountered otherwise. And then just the final thing from the psalm. If we read on, uh, it says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. To say that God knows your way, remember we're talking about the man who's, who's planted in the word of God. To say that God knows your way is to say that he, he looks at you with favor that he smiles upon you, that he loves you, that his delight is upon you. And really, the point I'm trying to get across here is that when you ask the question, does it work? Jesus said that the the good soil produces fruit. The answer is, yes, it does. because Not because you're great, but because the message, what we believe, what we preach, has an awesome power in your life. And it will produce a result. It will produce fruitfulness. Let me ask then what is probably the all-important question. What is the fruit then of fruitfulness? What is the fruit that Jesus is talking about here? 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. What does it look like when God's word has this effect on your life? And I think there's three answers to that. The first is that it has to do with the idea of personal transformation. I've been trying to labor the point really that the gospel, the message Christians preach is not one of you're good and therefore God accepts you. It's very much the reverse, that God accepts you because you know your, your life is, is sinful, that you know you're dirty, you know that there's... There's all kinds of stuff in your heart that you regret, that you feel guilty about, that you want to forget and leave behind. But the the good news of of what Christians preach is, is that God doesn't leave you like that. If he left you like that, it wouldn't really be a very powerful or good message at all, would it? It's that God begins to affect a change in your life 
that is irreversible and that is progressive throughout the course of your life. He begins to transform you, in other words. One of the things that the New Testament says is that when, when you're in Christ, when you become a Christian, you're a new creation. It says all things are new. But the weird thing is that when somebody becomes a Christian, actually, they can't, sometimes they don't look any different. The way I think of it is like this. It's like the day when we, we took um, a pregnancy test for little Sethi over there. And, uh, you know, as you do, you pee on a stick and magically a little line appears on a piece of paper inside this plastic stick. And, you know, there's absolutely no other sign or signal that this little person exists. Nothing. Except that tiny ball of cells is emitting a bunch of hormones and they're picked up by this paper and there it is. He exists. He's there. But you know that over time, slowly, slowly, progressively, but irreversibly, this new life is going to be making its presence known until you have cramps and pains and kicks and all kinds of things and then eventually pop and it's out. Um, <laughs> my point is that it's the same with Christianity that, that this fruitfulness Jesus talks about is something to do with personal transformation. Sometimes the, the change in a person can be like darkness and light. Even immediately things begin to change in people's lives. But sometimes it's much more like having or conceiving a child. It can be a slow thing. But over time, you look back five years later, ten years later, and by God's grace, His kindness, amazing things have happened in a person's life. Real change. And this is one of the ways, then, that the New Testament talks about what fruitfulness is. It talks about its meaning change in your life, change in your heart. You Turn with me to Romans 6. Um, it's on page 1650. Romans 6, verse 20, Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you can either have a master that is sin or you can have a master that is righteousness, and whichever one owns you is in control of you. But he says, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So there we are, this word fruit, and he means your character. Your, he's talking about who you were as a person. And then he says in the next verse, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. So he says the, one of the, the great fruits of the Christian life is this thing, this word sanctification. It means that you are progressively being changed, that things are happening in you, God's working in you to change you into the person that he wanted you to be in the first place. Over in Galatians 5, we get this language of fruitfulness again in the same idea. It's on page 1701. Galatians 5, verse 22. Jenny basically when she prayed in the worship, basically quoted from this verse, and it was really in line with what I was going to talk about. But it says, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's Holy Spirit in you is, and then he lists all these changes that happen in a person. He says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against such things there is no law. Now, I know that no Christian embodies these things perfectly, but what ought to be true of every Christian is that these things are growing in you. That's what fruitfulness is. It's the hope that you can change. I know, because I speak with personal experience, that the thing that most frustrates me in life is myself. The thing that I most would love to see change is me. It's not my circumstances. It's not my family life or my, my, uh, my bottom line on my bank account or my salary or whatever. All those things can change. and you know It's like a blip, really. But the thing that most you want to see change in your life, for me at least, is myself. And the promise what Jesus says is that the more that you are rooted in the gospel, the more that it has its effect on your life, like the seed in the soil, the more he begins to change you. Secondly, it has to do with your actions. It has to do with producing good works in your life. What do I mean? Immediately when we say a phrase like good works, you know if you've read your Bible that there's a red flag that goes up because one of the things that Paul keeps laboring against is the idea that that we need to do good works in order to be acceptable to God. And that is, as I've said repeatedly, that is not Christianity. But, and here's the big but, the New Testament also teaches us that we are saved in order to do good. Saved in order to live lives that have an effect, a good effect on the world around us. Jesus talked about salt. And salt obviously has a preserving effect. When you buy your... that amazing ham from Spain, it is completely immersed in salt, isn't it? And that's why it doesn't go off or stink. And that's why it's also delicious. And he says that Christianity is like that, that when, when the message gets into, into Christians, into the church, it become, they become like salt. They begin to have a good effect on the world around them. They begin to make changes in the world around them. And you only have to read your history books to know that this is true, that this is absolutely true, that Christians make the biggest impact of any people on the face of the planet in, order, in changing community and society. And it's God's work in them. It's, it's the overflow of what they've understood about God's love to us. How could we do anything but begin to love other people in a free way, in a way with no strings attached? And so throughout the New Testament, we get this idea coming through that the fruitful life is a life that brings, brings out good works in, in all kinds of ways. So I'll just read you a few verses. If you're quick, you can turn with me. But in Ephesians 2, he puts it this way. He says, we are his workmanship. In other words, God, we, if God went into, his, into his, uh, his workshop, we are what he's made. And he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There it is. You were created, in other words, you're saved in Christ Jesus for good works. This is what fruitfulness is in the New Testament. And he says it all comes out of the gospel in your heart, the gospel in your life, making its difference, making its effects. We could also look at Colossians 1. This is one of Paul's prayers. It's on page 1715. Verse 9, he says, And so from the day we heard, he's writing to some Christians and he's talking about their faith. He says, The day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, 
asking you may, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. One of Paul's prayers, when he's laboring in prayer for the churches that he'd help plant all around the empire, what he's praying for is that the life of God in those churches would produce, would grow up like the, the, like the corn in the field and produce good works. That the, the Christians, would, their lives would be different. We could go on, there's many more. But when you consider the storyline of the Bible, here's how you can think and understand and put it together. That when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them an instruction. He said to go and multiply and uh, have children, and he says, have dominion over the world. In other words, he gave man the, the headship, the kingship over the planet. And of course, all that began to disintegrate in a very short space of time because of sin. This is the way the Bible tells the story. But when Jesus began to rebuild the world from the cross onwards and began to save people and put them in his family, in the church, in his kingdom, that initial original instruction given to men was reborn, as it were, in his people, in the church. That whereas Adam had been told to, to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, now that job belongs to the church, except it looks like God's people living the lives that God called them to live. And we're not talking here in a very narrow sense about good works as something like helping someone across the road or giving to charity, all these things that we think, oh, that's my good list. It's not that at all. It's talking about the entire, the sum effect of your whole life. All the things you live for, all the things you seek to achieve in life, your family life, your relationships, what you do with your money, your prayers, your friendships and your relationships in church. There's unlimited ways that we can understand this, but it's all under the sum category of the good works that come out of your life, that suddenly the things you do when done for Christ become fruitful, are the fruit that he's looking for. And there's a promise with it. Jesus says that, He's called us, he's appointed us that we bear fruit and fruit that will last. Fruit that he'll look at in eternity and say, I want to reward you. I want to, to bless you for it. Finally, it's something to do with reproducing the life of God. This word fruitfulness is used through the Bible to talk about descendants, basically, and children. Um, the fruit of the womb, we say in modern expression. And it's there in the Bible all the way through. But when you get to the New Testament, the idea of fruitfulness is that somehow the life of God in you can be reproduced in others. The word that's had its effect planted into your heart, all you need to do is become a sower who sows. Imagine the corn grows and then the seeds are taken and they're sowed into other people's hearts. And the same message which has transformed you begins to transform others and that is the third type of fruit that the Bible talks about. Now, I want to close in just two minutes, but I, we can talk about all this on the individual level. 
a changed heart and life and character, the sum effect of, of what your life produces, your good works, and then the reproducing life of God in you. But we also need to think about this in terms of what, as a church. That when a church such as ours is centered on and built on, rooted on the Word of God, the Gospel, the message of Christianity, and not all churches are. In fact, we take a guess that most churches in this country are not. Something terrible, terrible happened to churches about 150 years ago that basically sent them spinning off in the wrong directions. I don't want to explain it all now, but the ones that are growing are the ones that are as it's plugged into what this message is about, and the others have just forgotten it. Just gone into traditions and whatever. And my hope, my prayer, my longing for us is that we would be the kind of church that is rooted in the Word of God. And so we embody together these three effects of what fruitfulness is. A wonderful godliness in, in the way that we love each other, and the joy and the peace and all those things that are present in the church body, in the family. The good effects, the good works that come out, that spring out, that we would be a blessing to this city, to London, and to this particular area. The church should always be a blessing, and that applies to you individually, wherever you are, but also to us, together, somehow. And then, of course, that there would be this reproducing effect. There are countless people out there who are hungering, who are desiring to know God. They may not be able to put it in that language, but I've met enough of them to know that there is a deep hunger in people to know what we have and what we can share. You know it yourself because you've made that journey. You crossed the line of faith at some point in your life, and it made all the difference in the world. Friends, I want us just to pray as we close now for this to have its effect in our lives, but also then to be true of us as a church. But this message, this seed, this word that Jesus talks about is simply the story, the account of what he came to do, that he, he lived the life that we couldn't live by living a perfect, sinless life, but then he took our place by dying on the cross for our sins. This is what we celebrated in communion, that he was our substitute, And that all of our sins can be wiped away when we cast them upon Jesus, when we believe in him, when we trust him as our saviour. As Christians, we can never hear that enough. And if you're not a Christian, I want you just to go away and find out what it means. Find out what it means for you personally, what difference it can make. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, when we read this parable, we know that your heart and desire for your people was that they would be the good soil, that they would produce fruit. And Lord, that they would do good and in in that way show the power of God in, in their life. And Lord, we ask that you would do it in us individually as individuals, but also, Lord, in this church, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that looking ahead, Lord, into, even though we're just very young, just a few weeks old as a church, Lord, we can look ahead and think, Lord, there's potentially centuries 
of existence here as a church in this area. We want, Lord God, this church to be built on the right foundations so that it have the right effects in the decades and even the centuries to come. And Father, we're asking that as we make Christ central, as we lift him up, that he would begin to draw people to himself here. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen.